I once took a job at a warehouse where during my orientation, everyone was saying how great the job is, how much I'm going to love it, how long they've been there, how much, you know, I'm going to be there forever too. But by the time I started the job, everyone started telling me how much they hated their boss. How not to take it personally when that boss would chew me out and be unfair to you. And how so many people actually wanted to leave and wish they could. Boy, that was a shocker to me once I, start, once I actually started in that process. Uh, needless to say, my employment there was not a pleasant or long experience. But there you have it. It was quite a bit of a bait-and-switch experience. And sadly, some people do the same bait-and-switch in the church. They speak of love, purity, and holiness, but there is known unrepentant sin all throughout the church in some cases. And we deceive ourselves <laughs> by, act, by and act like walking into the church with a big smile on our faces and an attitude of saying, praise the Lord, it is good to be in the house of the Lord. As if that's what automatically makes church a great experience, these smiling and completely inauthentic faces. When that's not always the case. It's the same hypocrisy that the Pharisees committed by speaking and acting one way when they are truly a different way inside, in their hearts. Because Jesus didn't want his people to be a smiling, happy, inauthentic people. No, he calls his church not to be happy necessarily, but to be holy. He wants his church to be holy. Which is why Leviticus 19 says, You shall be holy, for I am holy. We are called to live set apart to God, not merely putting on a facade of holiness and happiness, but to actually be holy and set apart to God. To have, to live according to the gospel, to live in congruence with the things we profess to believe. And since God has called his church, his assembly, his community to be holy, we are called not to allow sin, which is unholy, to remain in the church. Now I say remain for an important reason this morning. <laughs> because I'm under no delusion that we will ever achieve such a level of holiness in this church that sin will never enter it. Of course it's going to. We all come here every week. <laughs> you know, in fact, I've noticed a, a, an interesting pattern. I've noticed that every week we do a prayer of confession, don't we? Has there ever been a week where that has not been necessary? In our 159-year history, can somebody show me a week where the pastors and elders decide, you know what, we've been pretty good this week. Let's forego that part. No, I don't think you will find such a week. <clears throat> However, just because it happens, just because sin happens, it doesn't mean that sin remains in the church. It is dealt with. Jesus has paid the price sufficient to cover every sin that you and I and anyone else who can walk through that door will ever commit. 
And the good news of the gospel is that since the sins that separated us from God were nailed to the cross, all who believe this good news and respond by repenting of their sins and confessing will be forgiven. That's wonderful news. And this is how every sin is forgiven, by the way. I don't care if it's the most horrendous sin you can wrap your mind around, because we are not forgiven based off of how bad or good our deeds are, but based on how effective the blood of Christ is for cleansing us from all of our sin. As a hymn that we sing in this church says, his blood can make the foulest clean. His blood avails for me. That is good news. However, just because forgiveness and grace is so easily made available to the body of Christ, it doesn't mean it's always received or walked in. Pride, arrogance, and a lack of genuine faith can hinder this simple process. And therefore, sin remains unconfessed and unrepented of. Again, sometimes it's because, you know, let's, let's, let's be gracious. Sometimes it's out of ignorance. Not every believer knows the word of God. Paul, Paul himself once said that he wouldn't know that, you shall, that coveting was a sin unless he read in the word that you shall not covet. So ignorance is part of it. Yes, that's true. Other times it's pride and arrogance refusing to change our ways and acknowledge our wrongdoings, even though we know it to be wrong. We just, for whatever reason, can't force ourselves to say that word, I'm, I'm, why is it so hard to say, I'm sorry? Why is that so hard to say? Or perhaps we just weren't saved in the first place. Because we simply don't believe the gospel. We don't believe this good news. That happens too. So to protect the church and the individual members thereof, Jesus himself has established this three-step process for church discipline that we just read together in Matthew 18 to accomplish two tasks. The first is to prevent his church from becoming my former warehouse. Where where people are saying one thing and acting another way. Yeah, we'll say this one way, we'll talk one way in the sanctuary and another to each other in the parking lot. He didn't want us to live in that kind of hypocrisy. And the second is to restore the offending party in this case. Every step we're about to outline is aimed to restore the sinner. The the goal of what we just read isn't shame or judgment. That's where some people get really put put off and misunderstand and offended in this process. No, the, the goal isn't that. It's to draw attention that things are not okay between this person and God. And that correction is necessary for there to be true humility. I mean, true restoration, true unity, rather than that false unity we opened with. And I'll be the first to say what I'm about to outline this morning isn't fun, but it's absolutely necessary. And 
When done right, it's the most loving thing you can do in the church. Let's begin to unpack what Jesus' plan was for his community, where he says in verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Notice, by the way, it says your brother. <laughs> the phrase obviously doesn't mean your literal brother, of course. It's, uh, but your brother or sister in the Lord, somebody part of the family of God. This isn't, and, and of course, it's also not talking about what happens when a not yet believer sins against you. After all, what do we expect a unrepentant sinner to do? Sin. That's what they do. That's, that's their very nature. So to them, we turn the other cheek when they sin against us. But to our brothers and sisters in the Lord, we are right to expect more. They know the grace and the love of God. They know forgiveness. They know repentance. So it's right to expect more. And also notice, it says when they sin, sin. We do not do church discipline for petty annoyances or personal preferences or minor inconveniences, <laughs> but for sin. <laughs> when, when you start sharing amongst the church, you know, your, your petty annoyances with somebody else, how they dress, the type of music that they listen to that offends you, or other nonsense like that, that becomes something completely different. That's a whole other category. And it also says, when they sin against you, implying this is a personal offense, that they've sinned against you in some way. Although other ways throughout the scripture says that we should restore uh, other brothers who fall into sin. And to, um, James 5 talks about that, you know, to restore someone who's, um, who's fallen into sin. But, but, but specifically here, this process really emphasizes when they sin against you. So how do we address it? It says right here, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. So you, do you know who starts the church discipline process? You do. You guys, it begins with you. Because let me tell you right now, if you come up to me after service and mention the sin of another member in the body in the body of Christ here and you say um and you, you mention about uh, somebody sinning and you, you can expect me to say my first response to you is going to be okay how did they respond when you talked to them about this cuz i'm not jumping in there that's not my duty we're going to do things things biblical around this place the first step belongs to you. They deserve the dignity of having the opportunity to have their sin rebuked and have them restored privately. We don't have to get other people involved. It sends completely the wrong message when you send the pastor or one of the elders to go and be, be the hound of heaven, to come and rebuke people of their sins. That's way putting the cart before the horse. Because after all, do you know what they call it, when you confess somebody else's sins to other people? 
That's called gossip. That's right. And you've brought sin upon yourself doing that. Oh, but John, I'm not really the confrontational type. Why don't you do it? So what you're telling me is you hate them enough to let them continue in sin? That you have no love for them to see them be reconciled to God and to the church as a whole? And you care so little about your own sin, you're going to engage in gossip to avoid your duties? Come on. (laughs) No. And I get it. Confrontation is not fun. There's nothing about about the process that is enjoyable unto itself. It better not be. There might be something wrong with you if you enjoy that. But Christianity isn't about doing what's fun. It's about doing what's right. It's about doing what's good for, it's about loving your brothers and sisters around you. Because after all, as the verse goes on to say, if they listen to you, you have gained your brother. It kind of feels like the prodigal of the lost son when you read that. You know, you've gained your brother. The one who was lost has come home. You know, that which their sin which had caused division has been reconciled, and now there's peace between you guys again. And that, that's, that's the point of this process. Not to make people feel bad, but to reconcile. It's recognizing that when this person was in their unrepentant sin, they were already lost. But now they're home. They've been restored. This is good. However, it's not always that easy. Sometimes the person absolutely refuses to repent. And with that, we come to verse 16. That goes on to say, But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. That last part's a direct quotation of Deuteronomy 19.15, by the way, that a charge may be established by two or three witnesses. Having attempted to resolve this privately and with dignity, if this needs to go further, a second witness or third comes forward so that you know a formal charge could be made in later step based off of two or three witnesses, but it's also very practical. I mean, after all, we're sinners too. When I go to rebuke somebody, maybe I'm wrong. We need to have that attitude. You know, maybe, maybe I'm being, maybe in my first approach, I was being too harsh confronting somebody. Maybe there was a better way I could have worded it, what I wanted to say. Or maybe we didn't see the whole picture and we were missing something. Or there's a better way to address it. Either way, having another brother or sister with you for this process is very wise to help correct those little uh, mistakes that we can make along the way. And prayerfully, it is assumed if they hear the other brother or sister, guess what? You have gained your brother or sister again after all, which again is the point of this. And it does happen. But if they refuse even to listen to the two of you, The final opportunity to reconcile is in verse 17, where it says, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, I think it's very important to ask, what does it mean, tell it to the church? What does that mean? Well, 
I'm no scholar in the original languages, but I will tell you this. It says, tell it to the church. To the church, the assembly of God's people. That's what it means. And you say to me, John, that's, what? That sounds weird to me. And I, I would say to that, I know. But we need to recognize that's an indictment against us and how much we've changed over the last 2,000 years, not the scriptures. Because look, when, what Jesus had in mind here, and by the way, I, I don't believe he necessarily meant during the worship service. There's a time and a place for everything, and it's usually not here and now. But what Jesus had in mind when he said this verse was closer to what we would call an intervention today. I think that gets, gives us the picture much more closely to what he was going for, where the church, the members thereof, come to this person as a collective and, and they come to this person and say, look, brother, we love you. We want what's best for you, but you have a problem. Things are not okay, and you need to be aware of this. That's much more closely to what Jesus is saying here. And yeah, I know that might sound a little bit weird. That might sound foreign. But again, that's an indictment against how much we've changed how less loving the church has become, how unwilling to go to our lost brothers and sisters and confront them in love. Because when, when, when the church comes together for such a person and wrap their arms around them in love and say, we want to see you restored, doesn't that just send the right message? Doesn't that just communicate that we all are in this together and we all love you and care for you and want to see you restored? And hey, I, I, rec- I, I recognize a lot of people want to make this verse about telling it to, um, telling it to, oh, maybe we can just make it about the church leadership. But again, we, do you really want your pastors and elders coming down from their ivory tower and being the enforcers? Because that's what it's going to feel like if it's done that way. Rather, the whole church should come together. And yeah, maybe the conversation is led by the pastor and elders, but but it sends this message of love and concern that leads, again, to restoration, not judgment. And if this final good faith effort fails and the intervention phase doesn't work, then it appears that it's up to the church as a whole to recognize together that such a person as they are clinging to their sin is not in a right place with God, nor are they walking in unity with the rest of the church. That, that's what we're doing. We're, rec- we're, we're not pronouncing anything. The church doesn't have authority. We're simply declaring, and we're talk, we'll talk more about this next week, but we're simply recognizing what God's word has already said. If you're clinging, you can't cling to the cross and your sin at the same time. Let go of one and fully embrace the other. And as the church does this, from that day forward, they are to treat this person as the Jews in the first century would react to what Jesus says here, to treat them as a Gentile and a tax collector. These are people who were known 
to be outside the church, to be outside of the fellowship of God to a Jew in the first century whom Matthew is primarily writing to here. And so, I mean, because Gentiles had no part, you know, Gentiles meaning a non-Jewish person, they had no part in Jewish worship and the Jewish community. They were on the outside. And tax collectors were considered traitors. They were considered traitors to their people. So, with that in mind, if we're to think of people like that, well, what does that look like practically? Well, simply put, we're, we're no longer to treat as that person as a brother or sister in Christ. It is, we, we can no longer assume that they are part of the family of God. Now, in, let, let's be clear, you know, in, in most cases, you're not, they're not physically ejected from the church unless something extreme is going on. But there is a real difference in the attitude. Many churches, for instance, will also uh, refuse to serve communion to somebody under this kind of church discipline. Historically, that's one way it's taken place. And when we hear that again, that sounds really odd. It's like, why would we withhold something like that? But again, we got to remember what communion is. It's to be taken of by the body of Christ of which we are recognizing that such a person under judgment isn't under. They're not part of this group. We can't say you're not part of us, but you are part of us at the same time. Communion is a symbol of unity. It's a symbol of oneness in Christ. So in a way, it's hypocritical to serve something that means unity and oneness to someone who's not part of the community. But before we start thinking that this is a harsh message, what gospel are we reading right now? The gospel according to Matthew. What was Matthew's former profession? That's right, tax collector. The author, the, the human author of the scripture we are reading this morning was formerly himself a tax collector formerly himself considered a traitor of the Jewish people. But here he is restored. (laughs) Restored to the point where he is writing and recording for us a gospel that has been treasured by the church for the last 2,000 years. That's restoration to me, church. That at some point, Matthew himself recognized that he is a sinner, that he has fallen from grace, that he was not right with God, that he was not part of God's people. But upon his own restoration, his own recognition of sin, his own uh, confession and restoration, he is brought in again. Praise God for this. So no, tax collectors, sinners, Gentiles, people under church discipline, no, they are not permanently excluded from the kingdom of God in any sense. But what what is made to be clear as we put these points together is that such a person who goes through this process all the way down and gets, you know, you know, refuses to believe or even or change their mind even when the whole church is there. Any Christian interacting with such a person moving forward needs to view them as an evangelistic prospect rather than a brother or sister in the Lord. 
just as Matthew was before his personal conversion. But just like Matthew, the best thing you can do for somebody in this place is to just share the gospel with them. Share with them the good news of what Jesus has done for us. Make them aware of the separation that their sin has caused between them and God. And and make them all the more aware of the love and grace of Jesus Christ, who died to give mercy and grace even to someone under church discipline. So yeah, I'm still in this person, I'm still inviting them to church. I'm still inviting them to outreaches. And I am, of course, still praying that they will more clearly understand the grace and good news of Jesus Christ. And look, having... This is... What I love about this passage is it's so practical. It's so easily applied in our own lives. And let me tell you, it's not some pie-in-the-sky stuff. (laughs) Having walked this process myself with some people, I can attest that there is a power to doing it this way. And the, the tough love that is here does lead to brokenness, does lead to changing of lives. There are tearful reunions at the other side of this separation. <laughs> I've seen it myself. I've heard other pastors testify that the people under discipline have realized, perhaps in the process, that they never were Christians in the first place. It was just a cultural thing that they never took too seriously. And they realized through walking through this process, by somebody holding them to to the standard of holiness that God has put forward. Again, not you must be good, but no, you must repent. (laughs) You must walk humbly with your God. That they realized that they didn't have it before, that they, there was something missing in their lives. And that they took those steps to make their relationship with Jesus right, calling upon his name for the first time. And after all, that's the point of church discipline, restoration through the gospel, that believers who have fallen into sin would repent and continue to live the sanctified lifestyle we're all called to live. And that those who are not in right relationship with God would have that made known to them so that they would experience God's grace and that the church as a whole would be purified, sanctified, and made more holy over time. So as we draw to a conclusion this morning, I just wanted to leave you with a couple of final thoughts. The first is, am I in a right relationship with God? Do I have any secret sins that I'm holding on to that are remaining unconfessed or unrepented of or perhaps concealed? Because let me tell you, you might be able to hide it from the church. Anybody can hide a sin for an hour or two a week. You might even be able to hide it from your family and your loved ones. But you can't hide your sin from a holy and perfect God. You can't hide your sins from a God who has seen you wherever it is as you do it. 
So no, if, if, and if, if so, repent, turn from that sin, agree with God for what it is, F- find help, find someone who can hold you accountable. And above all, confess that sin to God. Be right with him today. Secondly, is there someone in your life that you need to start this process with? Have we been so unloving that we've hesitated to reach out in love to somebody who who needs to be confronted in love? Which brings me to point number three. Do you love that person enough to do it God's way? And I'll get more into this next point uh, next time. But remember that the context of this chapter, the context of this paragraph, I should say, just a few verses before this, to the point where you know that it was still on Jesus' mind as he's telling this. And those of you who have your Bibles open will see it. It's the parable of the lost sheep. That's very important. <laughs> now, be, to, to remember, as we discussed last week, that there is joy in heaven over even one sinner who repents. That's the goal of all of this. Restoration and the joy that angels rejoice over and our Father rejoices over when we do lay it all down at his feet, when we do find ourselves restored as we ought to be. Whether that be for the first time somebody, I believe that that's whether it's the first time you repent of your sins and lay it all at the cross, or whether it be for someone who's gone wayward, somebody who's gone astray for a season, someone who's backslidden into sin, or currently hiding their sin. Now God will meet you there too, and there will be joy in your restoration as well. Our God rejoices over anyone who is lost being restored into fellowship. So keep that in your own mind when you deal with your own sins and when dealing with the sins of those around you that our God rejoices in restoration. Thanks be to God. Amen.